This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. What made you want to be a writer? I couldn't do math. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's almost as simple as that, but I learned how to read at a very uh, young age, and I was possessed by writing in a way. My mom tells this funny story about when I was maybe three, four, and reading these storybooks. My imagination was such that I would demand everybody call me by the names of my favorite storybook mm. characters, and it ticked my dad off so much. I mean, he was a big old country boy. He died in 2015, but he was a big old country boy, classic Southern patriarch. And I was calling myself Pedro one day. There was a resourceful little burro named Pedro in one of my storybooks. So I wouldn't be called by anything but Pedro. And my dad was so mad at that. He said, so Pedro, we brought Rod home from the hospital five years ago. Uh, Where's Rod? I said, oh, daddy, he's on top of the sweet olive tree at Aunt Lois's, Aunt Hilda's house, at my two old aunts. <laughs> so daddy marched me up through the pecan orchard under the sweet olive tree and hoping to do reverse psychology. He said, son, you can see there's nobody at the top of that tree. And I went over there and started shaking the limbs. Rod, come down from there. Come down from there. <laughs> daddy, he's not coming. And my dad got so mad that he just marched me home and I grew out of it. it to answer your question, though, and being a Southerner, I'm going to take these long digressions. No, that's fine. I was so captivated by the written word. I loved it in every way, shape, or form. Mm. Never imagined that I would be a writer, but when I was in an undergraduate school at LSU, I was studying political science. Summer my, between my sophomore and junior year, I didn't want to go back home to my dad's house for the summer. So I got a job at the LSU Daily Reveille, the student paper, and I found I had a real talent for writing. And I love to talk about politics and religion and culture, but I found through journalism, through writing, I could talk about it at a level that just seemed right for me. Yeah. I don't have an academic temperament. And it just kind of went from there. I found that I loved it. And not only did I love it, but I, I find that I've come to think through writing. Mm. You know, I, I sometimes don't really know what I believe until I've typed it out and worked it out. I'm not quite sure why that is. I'm you know, my, one of my kids asked me recently, Daddy, why do you like to write? I said, fish got to swim, Daddy got to write. Right. It, it's just that simple. My wife gets so frustrated with me. She can tell when we're, we're at a social gathering, she'll come over and whisper in my ear, stop writing. Because <laughs> she can tell that I'm processing what I'm seeing and I'm trying to frame it, describe yeah. it in words. And yeah. she knows me really well, but yeah. that's, I, I can't help it. What's that ability to, to go inward too? You know, the words become a comfort and you can kind of you can kind of withdraw into it. That's true. And it, it almost, it's a way of drawing boundaries around experience. If you can put it mm -hmm. into words, it becomes more comprehensible. But also, words can be a form of defense against disorder. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was being bullied in high school back home in West Louisiana, I just descended into my books. Mm -hmm. And those words and the other worlds that they spoke of became like a castle for me to mm -hmm. hide in. Who were the writers that really captured your imagination back then? I remember reading when I was 14, my uncle and aunt gave me a Confederacy of Dunces, a first edition <laughs> for Christmas that year. And I look back on it now, it is probably a little inappropriate for a 14-year-old, but I devoured it oh. and I loved it. I've never laughed that hard at a book. I call it the fifth gospel. I love that <laughs> book that much. But it gave me a sense of of the absurdity of life, but also the just the, the folly of, of, of humankind. And I think that's one reason why I, I, I can't, even though I have kind of a pessimistic, dark vision of where we are as a culture now, 
there's just something about being from South Louisiana that, mm. that you, you can never really give yourself over completely to the fire and brimstone stuff because it's just not in our character. Sure. And you really kind of see that in Confederacy of Dunces because Ignatius Riley, the protagonist, he has no sense of humor about himself. He can't <laughs> see what a fool he is. And there's always times in my life when I've gotten really wound up about something. And I've written some dreamy ad. And I'll say, do you sound like Ignatius at the Britannia Theater (laughs) throwing popcorn? It keeps me humble, Ignatius. There's a pine wobbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. From Harbor Media, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. Today on our show is author Rod Dreher. Now, you might think you know Rod if you follow him on Twitter or read his columns at the American Conservative. But today's conversation, I think, shows another side of him, one that has deep concerns about the state of our culture, but one who also has a big heart and who has a profound hope in the power of goodness and beauty. So stay with us. My first job after LSU, I graduated in 89. I got an entry-level job at the Baton Rouge Advocate, our local paper. It turned out at the end of that summer, a guy I had grown up reading as the film critic for the paper decided to quit and move to New York. And they ended up offering me the job, and I was scared to death. I didn't know anything about film criticism, but when you get offered an opportunity like that, you'd better have the courage to take it. So I did. And man, I can't even read the things I wrote back then, Mm. because I was 22 years old. But they gave me a chance, and I'll always be grateful for that. And I did that for three years and then moved to Washington, D.C. to work for the Washington Times as a television critic. Mm. The Republicans took over in 94, the House, and they needed all hands on deck on Capitol Hill. And it just wasn't in me to go to budget hearings. Mm. So I decided to go back to arts journalism and took a job as a film critic in South Florida in Fort Lauderdale at the Sun Sentinel. And from there, I was brought up to the New York Post as a film critic. Do you feel like it was something that you got your sea legs with? You know, I mean, obviously, you did it for for a number of years. Yeah, you started off very embarrassed by what you you yeah. what you wrote at the yeah. time, and it was no false humility, believe me. When did you feel like you were were comfortable with it? I think probably by the time I got to Fort Lauderdale, because mm-hmm. I had been writing. I mean, when you get thrown into Washington D.C. and into that lion's den as a TV critic. The opposite guy, the guy who worked for the Washington Post, was Tom Shales, who was only the most famous TV critic in the country. Mm. And so the daily shame of having to go up against Shales, it made me tougher and it made me work harder to get better at my craft. And when I was in Fort Lauderdale, I was pretty comfortable doing it. And one of the things I loved about doing film criticism was, for me, it was a lens through which to view the broader culture. I was previously really mostly concerned with politics, early cast. But it helped me see that there's so much more to life than politics. And not only that, but politics is downstream from culture, as they say. And I felt that I could see more of what was really happening in America in terms of the the formation of our imaginations by watching film than by paying close attention to politics. 
Yeah, I mean, something I've said often is when the religious right was making rational, reasonable arguments about marriage, about sexuality in the 90s and the early 2000s, the left was giving us will and grace and modern family and friends. And, you know, you can see how the left captured imaginations in a way that the right still hasn't, you know, hasn't been able to compete. That's a really important point, Mike, because I can remember the moment I knew we were going to have gay marriage in this country. It was 2003, the spring of 2003. My wife and I had moved from New York City down to Dallas. We had lived through 9-11. My wife thought I was dead that morning. I was on the Brooklyn Bridge watching the first tower come down, and Mm. she didn't know I was alive until I made it back home to Brooklyn covered in dust. And she was never really comfortable living in New York City. And we knew we couldn't afford it. You know, we had one child and wanted to have more. So we moved to Dallas and we were unpacking boxes in our house in Dallas and we had the TV on. It was primetime live, the ABC News show. And Diane Sawyer devoted the whole hour to telling the story of a gay male couple who had arranged with a surrogate mom to have a baby. And they had the baby, but things didn't work out. They didn't know anything about raising a kid and they ended up giving the baby back or something like that. And Diane culminated the story with, <laughs> life is just crazy that way. It was kind of a moral horror what they had done. This baby was just a thing that these mm. men were using to express themselves. And uh, it was a human life. But the way that the media, that Diane Sawyer, ABC News, framed it was this charming, kooky story. Mm. And I, I looked at my wife and said, we're going to have gay marriage because this is the story the media are telling. Right. Argument can't stand up to that. Well, I mean, reason's out the window. And you know, that's something that so many Christian intellectuals don't understand today. No. I was a Roman Catholic when I first started out at the Dallas Morning News. And I can remember we were talking about gay marriage back then. And one of my colleagues was also Catholic, and I was using... Catholic teaching and making logical arguments based on Catholic authority, he didn't care, mm. didn't matter. And he considered himself every bit as solidly Catholic as I was, even though he stood against the teaching of his own church. And he's a nice guy. He wasn't like a jerk or yeah. anything. I really liked him. But that taught me something about how reason doesn't matter anymore. When you were in Dallas, that was when you began writing about priest scandals, and it led to ultimately led to your exit from the Catholic Church. That's I'm right. curious if you'd be willing to tell some of that story. Yeah, it was the worst thing that happened to me in my life, the most painful thing. I mean, I lived through the death of my sister from cancer and my dad's dying, but it couldn't even begin to touch how painful that was. I actually started writing about the abuse scandal when I was still in New York. I I wrote about it at the New York Post. I got moved over from being a film critic to being a columnist because they needed a pro-life columnist. And you have to look pretty hard in New York City to find a pro-life columnist, but that was me. I remember one of the first cases I wrote about, this is before it blew up big nationwide, I called a very brave Catholic priest, Father Tom Doyle, who blew up his career basically to stand up for victims. And I interviewed him for my story, and after it was over, he said to me, listen, I can tell that you're a believer. You really take this seriously. I just want to warn you that if you continue pursuing this, you're going to go to places darker than you can imagine. And as a journalist, that was catnip to me, but also as a faithful Catholic and as a new father, I said, no, this is my responsibility, my duty to help clean the church up. He said, I'm not trying to dissuade you. I just want you to know what you're getting into. Well, I went on to National Review a few months later and everything broke big out of Boston. Everybody began to write about the scandal then. And I had no idea that it was so deep and the lies and the deception had gone so much into the church. And And, you know, when you end up talking to people, like I remember a conversation I had with a Kansas farmer whose son 
had killed himself. He had been molested. And uh, the farmer had to sit there on his front porch and watch his wife, the boy's mother, drive up the driveway and tell her that their boy was dead. And they found out later that there were five suicides connected to that same priest. And the diocese knew what he was doing and didn't act. I mean, that sort of thing just was like a drip, drip, drip on my heart. But I always believe that if I have the syllogism straight in my head, if I have the arguments for the faith in my head, nothing can touch me. I won't go into the whole long story, but I began to learn more and more about how it was touching us in Dallas. And Dallas was a hotbed of the, the scandal. At our parish, the priest and a lot of the parishioners just didn't want to know. You know, people talk about how the Catholic Church hid all this from their people, which is true and which is horrible, but it's also the case that a lot of the people didn't want to know, mm. because to know is to be responsible. We weren't getting any kind of good teaching at our church, and the final straw was when a, a conservative Catholic priest, we thought, tried to worm his way into our family by saying all the right things, and Julie, my wife, and I didn't think we could be fooled by anything. Mm. And I found out that he had lied and he had been suspended. And that was it. There was something that snapped in me. I didn't have the will to believe as a Catholic anymore. We started going to the Orthodox Cathedral, Eastern Orthodox in Dallas, because from a Catholic theological point of view, the Orthodox, their their priesthood is valid, their sacraments are valid. We knew we couldn't partake of the sacraments, but we just wanted to be somewhere where the worship was beautiful and holy, and we were in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and where we weren't so burdened with anger and fear and mm. despite at the injustice. And we ended up becoming Orthodox, not because we believe the Orthodox Church is free from, from this stuff, but that was where our, our new home was. I think I look on it as a severe mercy, what God did for me and breaking me as a Catholic. I was so intellectually prideful. I can remember in Washington, I converted to Catholicism in 1993. I thought I was on Team Newhouse, you know, First Things Magazine, that we were the intellectual big leagues of American Christianity. Gosh, I just I think back at the man I was then, and I was cruising to be yeah. brought down low, and it happened. Mm-hmm. And I had been such a faithful Orthodox Catholic, and I always looked and divided the goats from the sheep in the Catholic Church by which bishops said Orthodoxy and which ones didn't. The scandal said that there were a profession of orthodoxy was no guarantee that you were faithful. And I'd resolved to be a more humble orthodox Christian and to focus on myself and my building up my little parish, not to get involved in church politics, which almost sucked me into the orthodox church, sure. but instead to focus on my heart. What I learned most of all was that until, if your conversion is only intellectual, you're not really converted. You have to turn the heart over to Christ fully. And this is an everyday thing. It requires everyday repentance, everyday prayer. And it's something that we do for the rest of our lives. How does a moral plague like the abuse, how did it survive so long? And how did it take such dramatic gestures to be uncovered? It lasted as long as it did, in large part because of the authority of the Catholic Church. People believe they're priests, they believe they're bishops, and in normal times they should be able to do that. People did not want to think it was as bad as it really was. They would know that father got sent away from the parish, oh, for alcoholism, that was a cover story. People didn't want to know much more than that, even though a lot of them really knew what was happening. And the bishops, a lot of them formed a network. They thought it was more important to protect the faithful from knowing the truth 
and to protect their own, they were covering their own backsides in many cases. And this just went on and on. What broke it was the internet. Mm. I'm serious about that. The, there was the Boston case of John Gagan, uh, a horrible molester that Cardinal Law had moved around and around and around. When his trial happened in Boston, the church's lawyers tried to get the papers, the records sealed as they had succeeded in doing mm. ever since then. The judge refused to seal them. When they got out, they got on the internet and then suddenly we were in a new world because people could read evidence, written evidence of what the church knew and how long they had known it. Yeah. And reporters all around the country started asking questions. Faithful Catholics started asking questions too, and things were never the same again. In 2009, Dreyer left the Dallas Morning News to serve as the publications director for the John Templeton Foundation. In 2011, he returned to full-time writing. He wrote a book called The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming about his sister's battle with cancer, a book about deep faith in small-town America and reconciliation amongst his family. In 2015, he published How Dante Can Save Your Life, a memoir about reading Dante's divine comedy in the midst of his own season of darkness and illness. This year, he published a book called The Benedict Option, a controversial proposal for how Christians might find their way in a culture that is increasingly secularized and increasingly hostile to those with traditional Orthodox convictions. Well, the Benedict Option refers to St. Benedict of Nursia, an Italian Catholic layman of the early 6th century who uh, went down to Rome to finish his education, saw that the empire had fallen 25 years earlier or so, and he saw a city that was consumed by decadence and dissolution. He was shocked, went out to the woods, lived in a cave, prayed and fasted for three years, and asked God, what should I do with my life? And he came out and ended up starting a monastic order. He wrote a rule for it called the Rule of St. Benedict. And what he did without realizing what he was doing, because all he wanted to do was serve God, he founded a religious order that would spread throughout the Dark Ages in Western Europe. Monasticism spread like wildfire, and those monks ended up evangelizing people, and they laid over the course of several centuries the groundwork for the rebirth of civilization in the West. And inside those monasteries, their, their libraries and their scriptorium, that scriptoria served as repositories of the best of Western culture. They copied down scripture. They also copied down the church fathers and even the best of the pagan manuscripts that they had. Mm -hmm. They were like arcs that carried the faith and the Western tradition across this dark sea. Well, I think today we're living in similar times. Um, and it, this idea didn't start with me. A well-known philosopher, Alistair McIntyre, uh, he's now at Notre Dame, he wrote a book in 1981 called After Virtue, in which he said that we happen to live in a time in the West now when reason doesn't mean anything. People are what he called emotivist, meaning that they decide right and wrong based on what feels right. McIntyre said that no society that has abandoned truth and a, a common way of figuring out the truth and authority can survive. He compared us to the, the fall of the Roman Empire, and he said in those days, there were people who, who quit trying to shore up the Roman Imperium, that is the system, and they moved out, just found new ways of living in community so that the tradition of the virtues could survive the Dark Ages. He said, we're waiting for a new and doubtless quite different St. Benedict. Well, I started asking myself as a Christian, as a father, what do we need to do now? If a St. Benedict appeared among us today in these very different circumstances, what would he tell us? I went and read the rule of St. Benedict. I went to the monastery in St. Benedict's hometown in Italy, uh, 
called Norcha today. It was Nursia, then it's Norcha now. And talked to the monks and said, what do lay Christians, not just Catholics, but Protestants, Orthodox, what can we learn about what from your tradition about how we in our own lives out in the world, how we can build communities and practices that help us live authentically Christian lives in this time of great dissolution, in this, in fact, uh, a time that is post-Christian in the sense that Western civilization is no longer built around the truth of Christ, but something beyond that. I believe and I hope that this darkness will go away at some point. I'll probably not live to see it in my lifetime. Maybe my children won't. But we still have to be faithful to Jesus, come what may. And it doesn't just happen. We have got to do things to build structures and ways of being Christian in our own churches, in our schools, uh, in our communities, that will give our kids a better chance of holding on to the true faith and not having it extinguished. So if somebody said to you, <laughs> you sound kind of alarmist, the dark ages are coming, right? What would you point to? What are two or three pieces of evidence that say, well, here's, here are the clearest examples we have of sort of the end of reason, the end of virtue in particular? For me, uh, one of the, the big bombs that went off in my, in my own thinking about this came in 2005 when the sociologist of religion, Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist-Denton, published a study of the religious lives of American young people. And they found that almost all American young people across uh, religions and across church traditions believe in what the sociologists call moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a pseudo-Christianity that basically it's feel-good stuff saying God just wants the best for you. Best in life is to be nice and be happy. The end. That is not Christianity, but this is the de facto religion of American people. So said the sociologist. And when I read that, the first time I realized that this was the Christianity in which I was raised in my very politically and culturally conservative small town in the 70s. They had that hard data that showed that this was a real thing and they called it parasitic on Christianity. It was not refuting Christianity directly, but burrowing into the institutions of Christian life and replacing the real thing with this counterfeit. Once you read the MTD stuff, it's like taking the red pill. You know, you can't see the world the same way again. More recently, the Indiana RIFRA Religious Freedom Restoration Act debacle in April 2015 was enormous. I've been talking about this Benedict Option for 2006, and it never really took off except among a relatively small group of intellectual Christians. But when that happened, when the state of Indiana tried to pass a state version of the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which all it would have done would have been to give an affirmative defense for religious people and religious belief that they got sued for discrimination. Wasn't going to guarantee that they won. Just give them a mild defense. The whole world fell apart. Big business for the very first time got involved in the culture war and they came down solidly against religious liberty. The Republican Party in Indiana and Governor Mike Pence didn't know what hit them. And we saw that disgusting spectacle of Memories Pizza, the little small town pizza joint in Indiana run by these evangelicals. We saw them made uh, villains for a national audience. That right there was a breaking point for a lot of Christians because a lot of us had been able to think that, well, the Republican Party has our back, you know? 
But now we saw that the Republican Party didn't have our back and that big business, which is a very powerful cultural force, right. which too many conservative Christians, might I say, have always thought that there was no real tension between the market and, and the faith. Well, now we knew different. It was kind of an apocalypse in the sense of an unveiling. And of course, two months later, we had a Obergefell. And now a Obergefell has gone so so far so fast that even the idea of maleness and femaleness is being dismantled in the culture and it may be written into the Constitution. So if these things aren't shaking you Christians up, and if they can't look at what the data is showing about how millennials are abandoning the faith in numbers we have never seen before in American history, this is not the going in the right direction. So what would you say to somebody who says, you know, whose response to that is, but Trump? But the 2016 elections, the Republicans, you know, the Republicans control everything now. We got Trump out of this. Well, <laughs> I wish people could see the look in your eyes brother, as if, I say if, that. Look, I didn't vote for president, and I'll just say that up front. And I didn't have to. I got to cheat because I'm from Louisiana, which was always going to go Trump. If I had voted, I might well have voted for Trump simply for the Supreme Court. Having said that, if anybody thinks a thrice-married casino owner who has a very loose relationship with the truth is going to turn things around, they are dreaming. I look at the Trump phenomenon and I just think he's going to so infuriate the left that the backlash, it seems, is going to be like nothing we've ever seen. I mean, we're two years away from what <laughs> seems to be an inevitable two years beating <laughs> from the left. I mean, I think about the church, and I particularly think about, you know, I, I can think of specific people who are going, you know, what are you talking about, culture war? Look, we just won all of this. And I feel like you're going to get hit by a tidal wave in sure. a couple of years. So uh, preparing for that, what do we need to do? How does the church prepare its people, or how do, how do individual Christians prepare themselves? Well, at, at the risk of sounding alarmist, but I mean this, how is it that Christians who are minorities and despise minorities in, in their cultures, like in Egypt, for example, the Coptic Christians were there before the Muslims took over, and they are abused, spat upon, persecuted today, and yet they live out the faith. I don't think it's going to get that bad for us. Who knows? But it's going to get bad. People are going to lose their jobs over this. And the thing I want to do for myself and for my kids is not protect them from suffering. I want them to be able to come to that trial realizing that no matter what comes, what they have to suffer, that they will not betray the Lord. It's easy for me to say this because I've never really had to suffer for my faith, but those days are coming to an end, I believe. And I think you're absolutely right about Trump. Peggy Noonan wrote a column recently talking about what Trump's lack of prudence and his um, is doing in terms of solidifying the the rage on the left right. and bringing them together, it's going to happen. And I think that we can be pretty confident that when they go looking for a scapegoat, the Republican Party goes looking for a scapegoat to blame for the Trump debacle, they're going to look at conservative Christians. Even if we didn't support Trump, hmm. they're going to look at us because we're expendable and because we're unpopular because we believe in, quote-unquote, bigoted things. Millennials, as we know, by and large, have no problem with same-sex marriage and see people who do, which is to say traditional Christians, as bigots. We are going to be treated as racist in this culture. Even if we have the freedom in law, if that's somehow, by the grace of God, maintained in the future, it's still going to cost us. You're going to have degrees from institutions, Christian institutions that do hold the line they're going to be worthless for a lot of people because nobody wants to, a degree from a bigot school. 
This is gonna have costs down the road that a lot of Christians who've been so comfortable for so long can't even imagine. And here's the thing, local churches are not preparing their people for the trials that are coming. I talk to evangelical pastors and Catholic priests who really who get what's happening. They look at their congregations and they say, people just don't understand. Well, it's their responsibility to prepare people. When I was writing the Benedict Option book, I went to Norcia, as I said, to talk to the monks, but Father Cassian, the prior of the monastery at the time, said, you know, this Benedict Option thing, you ought to go to this town called San Benedetto del Tronto. It's on the coast, on the other side of the mountain from the monastery. He said, there's a lay Catholic community there, about 150 people. They're doing what you're talking about. Mm. So I went over there to see them. They call themselves the Tipiloski, which means the usual suspects in Italian, and kind of showed you their humor. And they're amazing. They're all lay people. They're faithful Orthodox Catholics, but they come together. They have a school called the Scuola G.K. Chesterton. It's mm. a classical Christian school. That's a community school. They do things like service projects together. They have mass together. They have Bible study for kids and adults. They do so much and they do it so joyfully. They're going to make it. They're going to be the ones who are resilient. I write about them in my Benedict Option book because they are an example to all of us Christians, no matter what church we come from. We have to do what they're doing, but be faithful to our own traditions, whether they're evangelical, Orthodox, or Catholic. Uh, I'm not calling on everybody to become Orthodox or anything else, but sure. find how you can be faithful to your own tradition and do these things to put your roots down deeper and to thicken these relationships among ourselves because we're going to need each other. Even the word tradition, I think, is one of those things that needs to be redeemed amongst, you know, my tribe, the evangelical tribe. The last 30 years for us has been a gradual journey towards the smoke machines and the laser lights, you know, the jumbotron screens and all of this. I think one of our great challenges is if things get worse, evangelicals in particular, if our response is, well, no, we're part of this tradition, you know, where it goes back 2,000 years, we can't change because we're part of this. I don't know if this is a question or not, but it just seems like People can walk into our churches and go, where's your tradition? What are you talking about? Right? Uh, you said it, not me. <laughs> An evangelical friend gave me a copy of a book called How Societies Remember, written by a man named Paul Connerton. He's an English academic, uh, cultural anthropologist, and I think a Marxist. And he talks about in modernity, we've been severed from our past. That's just what it means to be in modernity. And he wanted to know what qualities did societies that managed to resist modernity most successfully, what qualities do they share? And among those he found was they have a story that tells them who they are. They clung to that story fiercely, and they embodied that story in a ritual telling. And the ritual involved the body in some way. And what I got from that was, because we're embodied creatures, to come together in ceremony and ritual to tell the sacred story and to involve our bodies in it, it gets into your bones. The sacred story gets into your bones. Now, he again, not a Christian, he, mm -hmm. but this has clear implications for Christianity. And I think about what—I've been an Orthodox Christian for 10 years now. It's very, very liturgical, very ancient. Our hymns are usually psalms, chanted psalms, or ancient prayers. The liturgy itself comes from uh, St. John Chrysostom, who was the Archbishop of Constantinople right. many centuries ago. So there's a sense of continuity there and a sense of solidness there. And one thing I found over time is that it does get into your bones. The prayers get into your bones. And when I've been tempted to stray, you know, in my thoughts or my practices, the everyday 
habit of living the Orthodox life, of fasting, mm. of saying the Orthodox prayer, saying my prayer rope, mm-hmm. saying the Jesus prayer as the Orthodox monks do, it has built into me a resilience that surprises me. And I can look back at the kind of Christian I was before I became Orthodox, where it was so much in my head, mm-hmm. and I could see how vulnerable I was. I'll tell you a story. When I was first becoming Catholic, uh, I was interested in the Catholic Church. I was living in Baton Rouge back in 1992. A woman at my work— and you grew up Methodist. I grew right? up Methodist, but we were very lukewarm, not sure. really committed Methodist. I'd had a what I believe was a uh, saving encounter with Christ and felt called to be a Catholic. A woman at my, my work, a photographer at the newspaper, said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a Catholic, and I've done a lot of work with Mother Teresa. The missionaries of charity are right here in town. Why don't you come work one afternoon at the soup kitchen with me? And I said, well, that's a very Catholic thing to do. I think I'll do that. So I went down to the soup kitchen in downtown Baton Rouge, and I peeled potatoes and washed pots. And I thought at the end of the day, well, this was fine, I guess, but you know, I, I'm an intellectual, and I would be much better off reading theology. And I never went back to the soup kitchen. Well, years later, like 15 so years later, with my faith in complete tatters, my Catholic faith in tatters, I realized that I would have been so much better off if half the time I spent reading theology, I'd been in the soup kitchen peeling potatoes and embodying my faith in things I did with my hands to serve other people in Christ. That was a powerful lesson to me, and it's one that I hope has not been lost on me having come out of this broken relationship with Catholicism. It brings me back to something you said earlier about the Benedict Option is kind of calling people back to faithful practice. So much of Christianity in general is so modern. It's so built around these rational arguments. You know, it's the age of systematic theology. And, you know, the way I grew up uh, as an evangelical, it was, you know, everything was built around Bible studies and Bible trivia and and getting the getting the answers right. But at the end of the day, I think you still had a congregation that would have turned to one another, had the right moment come along, and said, someone needs to teach us to pray. That kind of embodied faithful practice is one of those things that seems really diminished. In French, the French language, there are two verbs for to know, savoir and connaître. Savoir means to know with your head. Connaître means to be acquainted with. Mm. I know facts in the savoir sense, but I know you in the connaître sense. I think that so many of us Christians in today think that to know Jesus is to know about Jesus, mm-hmm. when in fact, that's part of it, but really, Jesus wants our hearts, and the heart has to be converted, because that's the seat of the will, and that is something that I, I hope is going to be more and more appreciated within Christian circles, because if it's just up in your head, it's not going to work, because your heart, wherever your heart is, I mean, there will your treasure be also, sure. and there will your thoughts be also. Yeah. In the cover of my book, The Benedict Option, there's a picture of Mont Saint-Michel, the medieval abbey built on an island off the coast of Normandy. I chose that because there's a movie by uh, Terence Malick called To the Wonder, and it's one of my favorite movies. It's a difficult movie, but it is a powerful, powerful movie, and it's about how we hold on to love, about how love is born in wonder. In French, the Abbey of Mont-Saint-Michel is called The Wonder. Mm. And the way the film plays out, it's a couple, the characters are, there's a couple that falls in love, and then there's a secondary character, a Catholic priest back in the U.S. Well, the couple that falls in love, when their, their love grows dry, they haven't embodied it in any kind of faithful practice, so they break up. The priest, when his, the feeling of God grows dry in him, he perseveres through faithful practice. And you get the feeling that, you know, the light will come back to him at some point, but these other people, they just drifted away. Mm. 
but the wonder to the wonder. I, I, I look at Mont Saint Michel as being a sign of God's ever presence among us, and we can always go back. You've said this before that part of what it means to be in the world as it is right now, it's a world that's not driven by reason. So you have that trinity of truth, beauty, goodness that the apologetic for the church now is to come back to beauty and goodness. If people aren't going to care about truth and they aren't going to care about reason, then we need to make our testimony far more about beauty and goodness. That's right. And in fact, of all people, Pope Benedict XVI said that he was probably the greatest theologian ever to sit on the throne of St. Peter in the Roman Catholic Church. So here is a man and a German who knows (laughs) about rational argumentation. But he said in this time and place, it is the two greatest apologetics for the church are the art it produces and the saints, meaning beauty and goodness. When I first read that, I thought about how I came to Christ ultimately, and I was not willing to listen to any rational argument as a young man, but it came through my imagination, which was first fired by the beauty of the Chartres Cathedral. That seized my imagination. I couldn't have explained it rationally, but being in all that ordered beauty, committed to God, it seized my imagination and wouldn't let go. The hook was set right then. God didn't reel me in until years later, but that's where the hook was set because it was set in my imagination, mm-hmm. because I experienced in my, with my senses, with my hearing and my sight, and, and just being in that presence of just that awesome beauty. Mm-hmm. And secondly, by an elderly Catholic priest that I met when I was a reporter who told me the story about how he had lost his faith at Yale in 1917. He was Mm -hmm. that old. God came to him in a Damascus Road moment in a church, a God in whom he no longer believed, but Christ came to him and he reconverted. And that old man told me that story with tears running down his cheeks as if it had happened yesterday. Mm -hmm. I'd gotten to know him and he was such a gentle soul and just the goodness, the quiet gentleness and goodness of him. And he would tell you straight up, it's Jesus. Mm -hmm. That spoke to my heart in the way that beauty did too. The truth followed later. It led me to the truth that was Christ. It's funny, I talk to a lot of, I'm I'm moving kind of intellectual Christian circles, but when you start talking to people about, well, how did you first, how did you become a serious Christian? If it was in their adulthood, it was usually through some encounter with a holy Christian, a good believer who was sacrificial, or through some form of beauty that sparked wonder that led them. Because the wonder points to God. The wonder doesn't point to itself. It becomes an idol in that case. Mm-hmm. But it should point us beyond to Almighty God. Well, I mean, speaking of Terrence Malick, I had a, I had a season of my life that was a tremendous amount of stress. At like the lowest point in that journey was about the time Tree of Life came out. And I'll never forget the day I saw that movie. I mean, it wrecked me. And it haunted me. I mean, I think I went to see it in the theater four or five times in a, in a month period because I, I couldn't even articulate what it was doing to me. And in hindsight, I see it now like it was such an expression of grace. It was such a beautiful expression of grace, such a beautiful vision of it. It awakened a hope and a faith in me that I couldn't have been talked into. Isn't that interesting? You couldn't have been talked into it. Right. And that's what beauty does. You know, when yeah. you see it or when you see goodness embodied, it's a piece that passes rational understanding. Yeah. Right now, there's a real temptation among Christians to be scared, fearful people. I fall prey to this a lot, and to get caught up in the anger of the pro-Trump, anti-Trump people, Mm -hmm. these disputations. I think that we all need to build sort of a monastery around our hearts to guard love, to guard the ability to love and to trust so we can be able to give it to people so it doesn't get dissipated by the passions of rage and anger. My life was changed by reading the Divine Comedy of Dante Alighieri. 
it's another conversation. But <laughs> in uh, Canto 16, I think it is, of the Purgatorio, the pilgrim Dante, you know, he's going up the holy mountain. He's at a place with the sin of anger, the, the tendency to anger is being purged from the souls on their pilgrimage to heaven. The real-life Dante had been exiled from his city in Florence because of war. I mean, there was political fighting, family against family, and it was terrible. The church was corrupt. And so the pilgrim Dante, that is the character in the play, I mean, in the, in the poem, goes up to Marco, character Marco, Marco the Lombard, and says, Marco, you're here in purgatory. I come from a world that's torn up. Tell me you're here being purged of anger. How can I go back to the world and what message can I take to them to fix everything? Marco looks at him and says, brother, the world is blind and you come from it too. Mm. And he says, people think that everything is faded, but that's not true. Nature does direct us in some ways, but God gives us free will. That's our most precious gift. And if we apply that free will over and over and over again, we can be changed. And basically, Marco says, if you want to fix the world and repair the world, start with your own heart. Mm. Acquire the peace of the Holy Spirit, as the Orthodox monk St. Seraphim Seraph said, acquired the peace of the Holy Spirit, and thousands around you will be saved. Mm. To me, that is incredibly practical advice. You know, we can't stop Trump. We can't stop the people who hate Trump. All that is going to happen. You know, we're going to have these wars and rumors of wars. What we can control is our own reaction to it. Mm. And I think as time goes on and society begins to pull apart more and more, and people become more angry with each other, if we make our churches oases of peace and love, real sacrificial peace and love, there'll be lots of people destroyed or nearly destroyed by the outward culture who will look upon us as the same way the peasants in you know, the Dark Ages Europe who are being ravaged by barbarians, the same way they saw the monasteries as a place of peace and light. You know, I talked to a historian who told me that one of the reasons the biggest cities in Europe today are places that were either Roman military garrisons or Benedictine monasteries, it's because of the monastic habit of stability, Benedictine mm. habit of stability, which is to say, you make a vow to stay in that monastery to the day you die. Well, what would happen in Europe, the monks would go build a new monastery, the barbarians would come in, slaughter all the monks, the mother house would just send more. And the common people around there said, these men of God are not going to abandon us. And so they moved closer to the monasteries mm. to settle there so they could be under the kind of the protection and to be guided by the monks and to pray with the monks. I think that there is a role for every church that's faithful to the Lord in these difficult times, this dark age we're in, yeah. to serve that same kind of role. I asked Rod, what do we do? What do Christians in the marketplace do when the world around them gets more and more hostile? Are there any insights from this idea of beauty and goodness that might shape the way we think and work? In my book, The Benedict Option, I have a chapter on work, and it is mostly focused on that. What do Christians do in times when we can lose our businesses? I mean, this is not a joke. This is not an abstract threat. For sure. I think that there is not a one-size-fits-all rule. I know faithful Christians who are working in law or working in different industries who are closeted as Christians. I wish they would stand up and speak out, but that's easier for me to say because my job and my livelihood is, is not on the line. I would say be prudent. I mean, go watch A Man for All Seasons based on the stage play about St. Thomas More. St. Thomas More did not say one thing more than he had to. He was trying to save his own life, be faithful to God. Ultimately, it wasn't enough, and he died a martyr. Be prudent. Prudence is not the same thing as cowardice. On the other hand, 
prepare yourself for the time when you cannot burn that pinch of incense and uh, be prepared for it. Build the networks up within the churches to look after each other. I think that Christian creatives, we need to, churches need to be more supportive of art and creation because that ultimately is why we've lost the culture. You know, we lost the artistic class. We lost the people who inform the imaginations of the American people, you know, and it's not going to come back through law or politics, but you never know who you're going to reach. Look at St. Benedict. He was just one little guy who served the Lord with all his heart, soul, and mind and created a rule for people to live by. That book, The Rule of St. Benedict, has been called second only to the Bible in terms of its importance to Western civilization Mm. because it helped preserve the faith in a time when the faith could have been extinguished in the West. I would tell your Christian creative listeners to pray to God with the same fervor that St. Benedict did in his prayer and fasting in the cave. Say, how would you use me, Lord? Mm. And also to study the best that has been written, the best that has been painted, and not to sacrifice their commitment to artistic excellence to a pot of message. Mm. You know, there doesn't need to be an altar call at the end. You know, that's yeah. something I see a lot. You don't see it in Catholic art so much, right. but you do see it in a lot of evangelical oh. art, and that really turns people <laughs> off. Really Have enough confidence and let the beauty speak for itself. Mm. Terrence Malick, I don't know if he's a believer or not. I, I suspect he is. I know he was raised uh, Maronite Catholic or Syrian Orthodox, but his film, To the Wonder and Tree of Life, they're so iconic in the sense that they convey truth and order in images that are just, I, I, I can't, it's hard for me to describe them. I mean, they, they touched you. That movie, To the Wonder, not everybody likes it. I've tried to show it to people. It's not a normal narrative film, but it's a great work of art. Work hard to understand beauty. I wrote this book about Dante, how Dante can save your life. I'm not a person who reads a lot of fiction, but when I was at the lowest point of my life, um, physically ill because of problems with my father and I was having a real crisis, I stumbled upon the Divine Comedy. And I opened it up in a bookstore in a Barnes & Noble in Baton Rouge and said, oh, I always kind of wanted to read that, but I'm in my mid-40s, the time has passed, I, I won't be able to understand it. But I pulled it off the shelf anyway, I opened it up, the first lines, in the middle of the, of the journey of our life, I came to myself in a dark wood, for I had lost the straight path. And I thought, that's me, that is me, he's speaking mm-hmm. to me. And I ended up reading the whole thing, and the Lord used the verses of Dante to reach my imagination and to redeem it and to show me a way out of the pit. Art did that. And it wasn't art that was for its own sake. It was art that pointed me to the higher reality that is God. I mean, this is a sacred vocation that Christian creatives have. And I I think that we're going to need them more than we and the rest of the church quite realize today. Now first he sings and then he goes. And what it means is hard to know. Cultivated is a production of Harbor Media and the Narrativo Group. This episode was produced by me. It was edited by TJ Hester. It was mixed by Mark Owens. Our theme song is by Roman Candle. Our soundtrack today was by Roman Candle and Dan Phelps. Tomorrow, Steadfast with Sandra McCracken premieres. Go subscribe to it right now, and it'll be waiting for you when you get up in the morning. Also, we're just a couple of weeks away from launching our membership program. It's a way you can get access to all kinds of bonus content and get a free t-shirt. So be on the lookout for that. Also, some of you are probably already aware of this, but I had a new book come out just a couple of weeks ago. It's called Recapturing the Wonder. 
And if you enjoyed the conversation Rod and I had about the importance of beauty and goodness, you might dig that book. So check it out wherever books are sold. All right, we'll see you next week when my guest will be former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez. Where were you on 9-11? I gave a speech. I was in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, In fact, I flew out of Dulles Airport uh, about 7.30 that morning to give that speech. And that's the same airport that American 77 flew out of, which is the airplane that crashed into the Pentagon. So I was... That plane took off within an hour of, of my plane, so uh, I was in the terminal at the same time as the terrorists, and I've often wondered whether, you know, that our paths cross, that our eyes meet, I, you know, I've always wondered about that. Don't miss it. We'll see you next week. This episode was brought to you in part. By the Lord of Spirits podcast, many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.